Welcome to a Civics for Life conversation with Nick Seabrook. I'm Liam Julian with Civics for Life. Nick Seabrook is an authority on constitutional and election law and an expert on gerrymandering, sometimes pronounced gerrymandering. He is a professor and interim chair of the Department of Political Science and Public Administration at the University of North Florida. His latest book is One Person, One Vote, Surprising History of Gerrymandering in America. Today's conversation will begin with a presentation by Nick, who will talk a bit about the surprising history of gerrymandering in America and also show us how gerrymandering has real effects on the competitiveness and fairness of our elections with a focus on Arizona, Florida, Michigan, and New York. And then after Nick's presentation, he and I will talk a bit more about his book, about gerrymandering, and lots of other things. So without further ado, I'll hand things over to Professor Nick Seabrook. Well, thank you so much. And I wanna begin by saying what an honor it is for me to be invited to give this talk at the Sandra Day O'Connor Institute. Uh, I'm a great admirer of Justice O'Connor. And not only that, I also think that the underlying message of my book that the best way to fix the problems in our democratic system is by building a popular movement for reform, by lobbying our elected representatives for change, by sponsoring ballot initiatives to give the people a voice in, in public policy, that, that that approach is preferable to relying on judges and courts to step in and fix all of our problems for us. I think that message is very much in keeping with Justice O'Connor's judicial philosophy and legacy. So it's a great pleasure and, and privilege for, for me to be here. Uh, the book, uh, as you said, is called One Person, One Vote, A Surprising History of Gerrymandering, or uh, as you said, to give it its original pronunciation, gerrymandering in America. And the book seeks to answer the question really of how we ended up here, uh, how the world's most powerful representative democracy, one that holds itself out as a model and a beacon to the rest of the world, could have found itself in a situation where our elections are routinely and pervasively manipulated by political actors for partisan gain. The book explains how gerrymandering has been ubiquitous throughout American history, how American gerrymandering is older than the United States itself, how it was happening in the colonial era, in the founding era, and all the way up to the present day. But it also explains how gerrymandering has become more sophisticated, how the tools and the data available to today's politicians allow them to use redistricting to manipulate and rig elections with a level of precision that has never really before been possible. There are two things that I'd like to focus on in particular in today's presentation. And the first of those is the gerrymanders historical origins. Um, as we know from comic books and the Marvel Cinematic Universe, every good villain needs an origin story. And the origin story of the gerrymander is one that appropriately is shrouded in mystery. People may think that they have some idea about where gerrymandering actually came from, but I can guarantee you that if you read the book, you'll discover that the legend of its origins is very different from the actual history. 
The second point of emphasis for today is the contemporary and ongoing negative effects that gerrymandering continues to have on the mechanisms of representative democracy here in the United States. One of the biggest challenges for those like myself who work within the redistricting reform movement is that many of those effects are baked into the political system. Those of us who are political junkies follow avidly the candidates and campaigns and issues that we care about but with so much attention being focused on where the car is driving to, we often don't stop to consider what might be going on under the hood of our democracy. Every 10 years, we get a new census and issues of redistricting and gerrymandering suddenly become the subject of intense media scrutiny and attention. You've probably seen this happening in your own state over the last year or so. And then very quickly, we move on to other things. The next election, foreign wars, what's going on in our culture. But the effects of gerrymandering continue to linger, and that makes it all the more challenging to convince people that this is an issue that they should be paying attention to. Hopefully, today, I can convince you of that. What exactly is gerrymandering? The definition that I put forward in the book is that gerrymandering is the manipulation of the drawing of political boundaries for some kind of inherently undemocratic or nefarious or partisan purpose. And that definition reveals what I see as being the three quintessential elements of the practice. The first being that gerrymandering requires intent, that those manipulating the levers of power have some concrete political or personal goal in mind. The second is that gerrymandering requires manipulation, that it's a departure from politics as usual. It's a perversion of the traditional district drawing principles that we would like to see in a representative democracy, where our politicians are connected to a constituency of similarly situated people who have common uh, goals and, uh, and issues in mind. And the third is that gerrymandering always involves boundaries in some way. Most frequently, these are the boundaries of legislative districts, whether it's the House of Representatives, our state legislature, or our city council. But as I talk about in the book, when we go back in US history, we see gerrymandering being used on other types of boundaries as well. The boundaries of electoral college districts and even the boundaries of the states and the territories themselves. Legend tells us that the gerrymander originated in early 19th century Massachusetts, where the eponymous governor, Elbridge Gerry, whose portrait you can see uh, on the slide there, hatched a plan to manipulate the results of the Commonwealth's upcoming 1812 elections. Gary had been a perennial candidate for governor of Massachusetts and had lost on five separate occasions before finally winning the office that he so desired. But he had been frustrated by divided government during his first term and had been unable to follow through on any of the grandiose policy proposals 
that had formed the backbone of his successful campaign. And as the story goes, Gary would stop at nothing to uh, finally get his agenda through the legislature. And that meant drawing districts for the state Senate that would ensure that his Confederates, the Democratic Republican Party, would control that chamber rather than the Federalist opposition that had stood in the way uh, of his proposals during his first term as governor. Most people are probably familiar with the famous original gerrymander cartoon, where a somewhat curiously shaped state Senate district in Essex County, Massachusetts, is depicted as a somewhat sad looking salamander, snaking around the western border of the county to pack together as many Federalist enclaves as possible thus allowing Gary's political party to capture all of the surrounding seats. But what the history books tend to leave out and what I discovered when I was researching this most recent book is that not only was the famous original gerrymander in Massachusetts, not in fact the historical origin of this uh, variety of electoral manipulation, but Elbridge Gerry himself was not even directly responsible for the plan that produced his everlasting infamy. It had in fact been the brainchild of his allies in the state legislature. And Gerry had gone along, signed the legislation into law, but had really not been the architect of the plan. And it's somewhat unfortunate that this man who served as a delegate to the Constitutional Convention representing his state, who was influential in the creation of the Bill of Rights and the drafting of the Constitution of the United States, who served as vice president under James Madison and almost certainly could have been elected president in his own right if he had been a younger man. Unfortunately, Gary passed away while still serving as vice president under Madison. But it's a shame that the thing that he is remembered for to this day is by lending his name to this practice when he was not even really responsible for its creation. Not only had gerrymandering been happening in the United States in other places in the wake of the American Revolution, most notably the state of New York, and as I talk about in the book, the state of Virginia, where another founding father, Patrick Henry, had attempted to use gerrymandering to prevent James Madison from being elected to the first Congress. This famously was the Congress that gave us the Bill of Rights and Madison himself was influential in its passage. But what I found is that gerrymandering was even occurring during the colonial period. And if we want to look for the historical figure who is deserving of the most credit or perhaps the most blame for the creation of gerrymandering, we need look no further than a name that I'm almost sure that most of our audience will never have heard before. A colonial governor of North Carolina by the name of George Burrington. And Burrington was uh, a very interesting and controversial political figure at the time. Um, the book has a lot more information and a lot more detail about his colorful career and history. But Burrington in the 1830s in the colony of North Carolina 
was determined, much as Gary was accused of almost a century later, of manipulating the boundaries of the legislative districts that were used by the colonists to represent their interests uh, at the colonial level to ensure that his allies would be in control. And in the book, I make the case that the Burrington gerrymander in colonial North Carolina is in fact the original American gerrymander. And if anything, we should be naming it after him rather than the unfortunate Elbridge Gerry. What I'd like to do for the remaining bulk of my time in this presentation is to fast forward from gerrymandering's historical origins and the incidents in which it has been ubiquitous throughout US history and for more on those, how gerrymandering touched the careers of figures like Abraham Lincoln, like James Madison, um, interested readers can consult the book. And there is a wide variety of interesting stories there about how gerrymandering has intersected with some of the most significant moments and significant events and significant figures in American political history. But right now we are approaching an election. One month from now, the people of all of the 50 states will decide who will represent them in the United States Congress for the second half of President Biden's term in office. And of course, we have just gone through a redistricting cycle. In the wake of the 2020 census, all 50 states redrew their legislative boundaries in order to comply with the Supreme Court's constitutional mandate of one person, one vote. And as happens every decade, politicians have been eager to try and use their control over the redistricting process to gain a political edge. And I think the best way to approach the contemporary effects of redistricting and gerrymandering in America is to compare and contrast some of the states that do this process well. And the two that I'd like to highlight on that front are the states of Michigan and Arizona. And some of the states where gerrymandering has been particularly pervasive and pernicious. And Exhibit A on that front is my home state of Florida. And in fact, both the state of Florida and the city of Jacksonville, where I'm speaking to you from right now, have been ground zero in the gerrymandering and redistricting wars uh, of the 2020s. And figures like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis have been central in some of the most undemocratic gerrymanders that have been put in place and which will continue to affect our elections for the remainder of this decade. One of the things that I argue for in the conclusion to the book is that the best way to ensure that gerrymandering is not a problem in our elections is to remove self-interested politicians from the redistricting process entirely. The fundamental and negative incentives that are created by having the foxes guard the henhouse, by having politicians draw the districts 
that they themselves and their political allies will run for election and re-election in is the root cause of this problem in our society. And the only way to fix it is to remove the politicians from the process, to create some kind of independent entity, a commission, uh, some kind of uh, independent uh, source of authority that is responsible for drawing districts based on neutral democratic principles. There have been a number of states that have adopted such commissions over the last couple of decades. And one of those is the state of Michigan. And Michigan is particularly significant when it comes to gerrymandering because it has been one of the worst offenders on this front in the last two decades. Michigan is a swing state in presidential elections. It's a state that voted for Donald Trump in 2016 and then voted for Joe Biden in 2020, kind of the epitome of a competitive state. It's a state that has had governors who have been both Democrats and Republicans over the last decade. But Michigan has had some of the least competitive legislative elections in the country over the last 20 years because of the effects of gerrymandering. In the wake of both the 2000 and the 2010 census, the Republican Party controlled the levers of power in Michigan, and they were able to use that control to manipulate the districts to not only secure their majority in the state legislature, but also gain a major edge in Michigan's congressional districts as well. But that all changed when the voters of Michigan adopted an amendment to their state constitution, which created an independent citizens commission, which was responsible for redrawing Michigan's districts after the most recent census. And the result has been the kind of map that you can see on the screen right now. These are the US House of Representatives districts that will be used for Michigan's congressional elections in November. And what sets them apart from the districts that had been in use previously is that they are both representative of how the people of Michigan tend to vote as a whole, but they are also competitive. There are a solid critical mass of districts in the state that can plausibly vote for either a Republican or Democratic candidate in the fall election. This is the very opposite of what gerrymandering hopes to achieve. Gerrymandering draws politicians into safe districts where the outcome of the election is never really in doubt. And by so doing, it breaks the link, it severs the connection between elected representatives and the constituents that they are supposed to speak for. When politicians don't have to worry about re-election, when their district is safe, when their majority in the legislature is safe, they no longer have to pay all that much attention to public opinion. They no longer have to worry about pursuing a legislative agenda that is popular with broad majorities of their constituents. They are free to pursue narrow partisan goals that are out of step with the vast majority of the people in their state. 
and they are free to appeal to the most extreme among their own supporters, who will be the relevant constituency when it comes to them winning their subsequent primary elections. One of the things that this map, I think, illustrates, and that we will also see on the subsequent maps from other states, is that every American state shares a variation on the same basic political geography. And this political geography is central to the practice of gerrymandering. By and large, Democrats tend to dominate urban areas large cities, and even smaller cities. If you look at any major urban center in the United States with a population, let's say, of 100,000 people or more, those jurisdictions tend to vote for Democrats. Cities in the Northeast and on the West Coast are bluer than cities in the South, the Sun Belt, and parts of the Midwest. But nevertheless, that general pattern holds for pretty much every urban area in the United States. On the flip side, rural America tends to be overwhelmingly Republican. And you can see this on pretty much any map of political outcomes in the United States. You have this sea of red where Republican candidates will clean up in the sparsely populated rural areas of their state or of the country. And then you have the suburbs, and the suburbs tend to be the swing areas in American elections, areas where both Democrats and Republicans can reasonably compete. And the suburban districts tend to be those that are crucial to deciding any overall legislative election in a state that is reasonably close. And that pattern holds here in Michigan. Ideally, what you're looking for in a good redistricting map, a map that accurately reflects the political preferences of the people in a state, is that you will have a number of urban districts that tend to vote for Democrats. You'll have a number of rural districts that tend to vote for Republicans. And you'll have a critical mass of competitive districts that are either suburban in nature or which mix together constituents of different backgrounds. The way that gerrymandering works is to slice and dice those constituencies to divide them between districts in a way that dilutes their overall political power. As you can see from the map of Michigan, the Michigan Redistricting Commission produced a set of US congressional district boundaries that satisfy those basic criteria for a good redistricting map. You have some urban districts in the city of Detroit, the major urban center in the state of Michigan, and there's a lot of blue on the map surrounding downtown Detroit and some of its uh, inner suburbs. Then you have the rural Republican areas of the state. You have red districts representing the Upper Peninsula, and some of the more rural parts of lower Michigan as well. And then you have the competitive seats. And you can see that the competitive seats in Michigan tend to be found in the suburbs of Detroit and surrounding some of the other larger cities in the state, Grand Rapids, Lansing, and Flint. 
cities that are too small to justify a district of their own, but when you combine them with their surrounding suburbs and exurbs, produce seats that are reasonably competitive for both Democratic and Republican candidates. You can also see the efficiency gap metric, which is a measure of how gerrymandered a state is, is almost exactly at parity. This will be a contrast with some of the maps that we'll look at moving forward. Michigan then, a pretty good example of how to do redistricting well. Another example of how to do it well is the state from which I think a substantial chunk of our audience may be watching from, the state of Arizona. Arizona also has an independent redistricting commission. It was also created through a citizen's ballot initiative, this time back in the 2000 election. And the Arizona redistricting commission also produced a balanced US House map that represents rural, suburban, and urban constituents in a fair and impartial manner. You can see Arizona has four safe Republican seats representing the northern and more rural parts of the state. It has two safe Democratic seats, uh, which bring in parts of the city of Phoenix and Tucson. And it has three competitive seats that represent suburban Phoenix and the southeast portion of the state. Again, this is a solid democratic and above all representative map of how people in Arizona tend to vote. The efficiency gap, again, as you can see, the closer to zero this is, the fairer the map is. There's a slight democratic bias there, but let's contrast the efficiency gap in Arizona with the efficiency gap in my home state of Florida. And this is where we start to see how gerrymandering can fundamentally alter the results of elections in a given state. Florida, like Arizona and like Michigan, is a pretty competitive state at the national level. Voted twice for President Obama, more recently has been slightly more Republican, but nevertheless viewed as a swing state in recent presidential elections. However, Florida does not have any kind of independent redistricting commission. Redistricting is the responsibility of the state legislature. And this time around, the process was also heavily influenced by our Republican governor, Ron DeSantis. Governor DeSantis vetoed the map that had been passed into law by the state legislature. And that map was reasonably fair, although it did tend to produce outcomes which were somewhat slanted towards the Republican majority. Governor DeSantis instead pushed the map that you can see on your screen right now, which was designed specifically to maximize the number of Republican seats in the electoral landscape. And it did that by slicing and dicing Florida's urban and suburban constituents and combining them with districts where those Democratic voters would be outnumbered by the Republicans in the surrounding rural areas. And you can see this most obviously in North Florida, a sea of red on the map. But this sea of red includes the cities of Jacksonville, Gainesville, and Tallahassee, urban areas that tend to vote much more democratic in elections. 
The city of Jacksonville is bifurcated between two Republican districts, and the cities of Gainesville and Tallahassee have been submerged in the surrounding red rural areas. Elsewhere, Democratic voters in places like Tampa and Orlando and Miami have been packed into districts where they represent huge majorities, thus allowing the surrounding suburban areas to be drawn into Republican-leaning districts. And you can see that reflected in the light red surrounding the city of Tampa, north of the city of Orlando, and north and south of the Miami-Fort Lauderdale area. The result is that in a swing state, we have 18 safe Republican seats, two competitive seats, and only eight safe Democratic seats. For an efficiency gap, 20.2% in the Republican direction. And I have to say, I've looked at a lot of redistricting maps uh, over the last decade or so, and this Florida map is just about the worst gerrymander I have ever seen in terms of the degree to which it distorts the results of US House elections in our state. Another state that has been prominently involved in gerrymandering, uh, although as I'll talk about in a second, uh, there's a postscript to this story that produced a much more beneficial outcome than we saw here in Florida. But just as Republicans in Florida drew a US House map that was designed to maximize the number of Republicans who would be elected to Congress, so too did Democrats in New York attempt to do something similar with their House map. And as you can see, the original New York congressional map, while not as extreme as the gerrymander in Florida, nevertheless produced a sizable pro-democratic efficiency gap. Um, and if you're interested in learning more about the ins and outs of the efficiency gap metric, there's more on that both in the book and in some of the academic literature on that topic. The original New York map drew 20 safe Democratic seats, four safe Republican seats, and two competitive seats. You can kind of see how gerrymandering operates by minimizing the number of competitive seats and maximizing the number of safe seats for the majority party. But as I said, there is a postscript to this New York story because there was a lawsuit that was filed challenging this map and the New York state courts in a series of rulings determined that it violated the state constitution. And they required a new map to be drawn that more accurately reflected the voting population in New York. And what emerged from that lawsuit was this map. And you can kind of see clicking from one to the other, how easy it is just by tweaking the district boundaries to produce a very different election outcome in the state. Here's the original map, and here is the map that emerged from the lawsuits. And you can see that the biggest difference between the two maps is the number of competitive seats in the state. The number of seats where Republicans and Democrats have a meaningful chance of winning. And it's these competitive seats that produce an electoral system that is responsive to the will of the people. If all of the seats are safe, then no matter how the people vote, 
the candidates who are the, in the majority in those seats are always going to hold on to their positions. But if you have a critical mass of competitive districts, this means that the people have a meaningful voice. They can vote for change. They can throw the bums out if they're unhappy with their current representatives, and they can replace them with a majority that more accurately represents their views. Competitive districts and electoral responsiveness are the central mechanism of a representative democracy. I want to conclude with some lessons that we can draw from observing how gerrymandering is manipulating the outcomes of our elections as we speak. And I've produced just a small sampling of states for this talk, but there are electoral maps across the country for the US Congress, for state legislatures that are going to produce election results in November that fundamentally distort the way that the people are actually voting in order to ensure that one political party or the other ends up on top. As I said earlier, the best way to fix this problem is to remove politicians from the equation entirely. And the mechanism for doing so is through the creation of independent redistricting commissions. The kinds of commissions that have been put in place in states like Michigan and Arizona, and which are working so much better than the system that's used in places like Florida and in places like New York, where politicians can put their thumbs on the scales of democracy in order to ensure their preferred political outcome. The second is that those commissions should be encouraged to create competitive legislative districts. Not all of the districts, but a critical mass that combine different constituencies and which give the people a meaningful voice in the outcomes of elections in their states. It's only through competitive districts and election outcomes that are meaningfully in doubt that the legislature is responsive to changes in public opinion and popular sentiment. And I want to conclude with what I'd say is the kind of the ultimate message of the book, observing how gerrymandering has infected American politics, both historically and contemporarily, the basic conclusion is that politicians should not be choosing their voters. The voters should be choosing their politicians. And if there's one thing that you take away from the book, I think it should be that simple message. Thank you, Nick. That was fascinating. And I appreciate you uh, going to bat for Elbridge Gary there. That was good. You know, it's unfair that his name is, has been tied to this for so long. And maybe that's an argument for why, why we should call it gerrymandering to further separate it from, from poor Elbridge. Um, yeah, if I do something to rehabilitate the historical reputation of Elbridge Gary, then my work will not have been in vain. Right. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, there's a, it might be the first chapter, but it's definitely one chapter in your book um, um, you, you, is called uh, A Uniquely American Problem. And so maybe you can tell us a little bit more about this. Um, is this the, this is the case that other democracies do, do not have this issue? Historically, I think gerrymandering has been a 
natural and inevitable problem of any electoral system that relies on districts to choose the politicians in power. And anytime you're drawing districts and you have any kind of political involvement in that process, the temptation for politicians to put their thumbs on the scale, to try and draw those districts in such a way that benefits their side uh, is, I think, uh, almost impossible to resist. But the reason why I refer to gerrymandering in the book uh, as a uniquely American problem is that while other nations have experienced problems with gerrymandering, and notably, I trace the origins of the gerrymander not only back to British colonial governors, but also to the British Parliament as well. And the practice known as rotten boroughs, where uh, parliamentary constituencies were drawn in such a way to allow the aristocracy to maintain their control of the levers of power, even when the nation became at least nominally more democratic. Um, and not coincidentally, I think, Great Britain was also the first nation to solve the problem of gerrymandering. Um, it was actually in New Zealand, uh, which back in uh, the late 19th century was still uh, part of Great Britain. But New Zealand was the first country to experiment with some kind of independent commission for drawing districts. And that practice quickly spread to other parts of the British Commonwealth, including, um, uh, including Great Britain itself, uh, including Australia, uh, including Canada. All of these nations created what are called boundary commissions, which is an independent entity insulated for political influence that is tasked with drawing districts based on neutral and democratic criteria. And this practice has basically spread throughout virtually every other nation that uses districts for their elections. The United States kind of remains the, the sole outlier. Um, it's interesting to ponder what the reasons for that might be. Um, I think it's partly because of our decentralized federal system where redistricting is not something that's done at the national level as it is in a lot of other places. It's something that's done by the individual states. And so while there have been a number of states that have changed the way they do things, uh, you don't have that kind of standardized national procedure that you see in other places. That's really interesting. Um, and let's, let's, let me ask you about these independent commissions. Um, a big question in my mind is um, when one of these commissions does its work, is the goal of the commission to essentially create districts that are as random as possible? Or are these commissions specifically trying to create districts that are as competitive as possible? I think generally, um, neither of those things are the primary focus of redistricting commissions. And whether it's a commission like the one in Michigan that is made up of ordinary citizens, or whether it's a commission like the one in Arizona, where you have a different selection process and there is a role for the legislature in that selection process. But nevertheless, you have kind of an independent tie-breaking vote to ensure that that one side doesn't doesn't dictate the process. But I think the the 
the practice that most of these commissions generally follow is to have districts that best represent the communities in the state. And that's why I focus so much on this kind of urban, suburban, rural divide, because the way that you create uncompetitive districts, if you're gerrymandering, is by kind of slicing and dicing those types of communities, combining them together. Um, a couple of months ago, I did uh, an event in conjunction with the League of Women Voters of Utah uh, in Salt Lake City. And the redistricting map in Utah is a, a really good illustration of how to accomplish this. You have, as in many places, um, one large urban center in Utah, the city of Salt Lake City, where uh, most of the Democrats in the state live and where Democratic candidates are pretty competitive. And then pretty much the entirety of the rest of Utah is, uh, is Republican uh, in terms of how it leans. And what the legislature did in Utah was basically divide the greater Salt Lake City area between four different districts. Essentially, they drew a line down the middle, they drew another line across uh, the city, and divided Salt Lake City into four different segments that they could then combine with districts that included the kind of more rural red areas in the state. And so you have a situation where the natural way to draw districts in in Utah is to have a district for Salt Lake City and then three districts for the surrounding areas in the rest of the state. By drawing the districts in such a way, the legislature was able to ensure that all of the US House seats in Utah would be Republican, as opposed to there being a Salt Lake City district that would potentially vote for, for Democrats. And so I think focusing on preserving communities, um, grouping together constituents in cities that tend to vote for Democrats, grouping together rural constituents that tend to vote for Republicans, but then also having districts that uh, combine perhaps smaller urban areas with surrounding suburbs, which draw districts for the suburban areas of larger cities like Chicago or New York, inevit inevitably ends up producing uh, a critical mass of competitive districts. And that ultimately is what I think these commissions should be doing. They should be drawing districts that make sense for the people of those states that represent the different communities and different constituencies that are present and don't slice and dice those communities in order to produce election outcomes that don't represent what the people in that state actually stand for. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was interesting. I was reading the book and you uh, you write in the book about the increasing sophistication enabled by technology uh, for gerrymandering and how now we, we're, we're down to like the household level almost, right, with figuring out how people are going to vote. My, my thought when I was reading this was, I wonder if technology could be harnessed to accomplish the other outcome, i.e. if we could essentially use computers in some way to help draw these sort of randomized districts or or if for example we wanted to create competitive districts if there would be a way for an independent commission to sort of input that into a a computer and sort of say uh, have the computer spit out five potential maps and then maybe they could select from one of them is anything like that being done i'm, I'm speaking from complete ignorance of technology here i don't even know if this is like possible but uh... 
It's certainly being done. And one of the areas where you see these algorithmically generated maps being used quite a bit is in litigation, including the yeah. ongoing litigation here in Florida to kind of demonstrate the, the broader universe of potential maps. And uh, by drawing a large number of, uh, of, uh, of possible maps using an algorithm and you can emphasize or de-emphasize certain criteria, it kind of shows you how much of an outlier the map that the legislature actually drew is. And in the ongoing litigation here in Florida, it's a pretty neat illustration of just how extreme a Republican gerrymander the map that Governor DeSantis was pushing actually is. You can, mm -hmm. um, can kind of program in the criteria we want the map to to avo avoid dividing cities and counties. We want the map to, to group together similarly situated constituents. We want the map to comply with federal legislation like the Voting Rights Act. And given those constraints, um, what is the kind of distribution uh, of maps that results? And by doing so, you can illustrate that the map that ultimately was signed into law here in Florida is an extreme outlier. And it's right. an extreme outlier of the maps that tend to provide the greatest benefit to one political party over over the other. Um, yeah. So I do think there's a place for those algorithmically drawn maps. Um, ultimately, though, it's very much much dependent on what the inputs are, what you right. tell the algorithm to maximize or minimize yes. in terms of mm -hmm. outcomes. Uh, I think they can be useful perhaps for guiding the process, but ultimately there are human decisions that have to be made about the trade-offs involved in redistricting. And yeah. ultimately a lot of the good things that we might want out of a redistricting map, preserving communities, avoiding dividing counties and cities, creating competitive districts, these can sometimes be mutually exclusive and ultimately, there has to be a decision made about how those trade-offs are going to play out. Yeah. I appreciated in your book, Nick, um, about, you know, we're always talking in this country about we need more bipartisanship. You know, I think we have found a bipartisan issue that unites everyone. You point out in your book, uh, gerrymandering is a bipartisan. There's a love of it for incumbent politicians of all parties. Um you, you, you wrote, in fact, you said one reason it's so tough to get, get rid of it is, quote, while everyone wants to get rid of it when they're losing, no one wants to do so when they're winning. And that, I guess, is to your point about how really uh, it's just politicians can't be a part of this. It, that's your takeaway. Yeah. And I think the, the historical lesson that, that we've learned is that both Democrats and Republicans will use gerrymandering to the maximum extent possible when they're given the opportunity to do so. And right. it, it tends to be an issue that has a, a partisan valence to it, at least today, because in the last couple of decades, Republicans have tended to be much more successful at using gerrymandering to boost their electoral prospects than, than Democrats have. And part of that is just coincidence. Republicans did really well in the 2010 election, took control of state legislatures in places like Michigan and Florida, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. Um, 
you go back to the 1970s and 1980s, and essentially the story was was the opposite one. It was Democrats who controlled state legislatures in places like California and Texas, which are two of the states that, that I highlight in the book. Um, and back in the 70s and 80s, it was Republicans that were filing the lawsuits trying to get the courts to overturn Democratic gerrymandering. Um, and it was the Democrats who were saying, well, we should kind of leave this to the political process, basically the exact opposite to, to the arguments that are, that are being made today. Uh, right. And so the, the, the pitch I make in the book, because uh, I really want this to be uh, a book that, that appeals to people of all different political persuasions, is that um, just because you may be winning right now, doesn't mean that that's always going to be the case. And so uh, fundamentally in the long run, getting rid of gerrymandering is someone that is something that benefits Americans of all political persuasions because it ensures that the people who represent them uh, represent their interests uh, and uh, that they have the opportunity as voters to, uh, to, to, to elect a government that is representative of, of what they would like it to do. Yeah. Yeah, I um, and thank you, by the way. I appreciate your kind words for Justice O'Connor. Um, you don't have the kindest things to say in the book about the courts, though, generally, as far as you're, you think uh, relying on the courts to solve these problems is is just really a dead end road, correct? I do. And in particular, I think relying on the federal courts for a national solution. And I think that has been the major failing of the redistricting reform movement going all the way back to the 1980s, where the first lawsuits that challenged partisan gerrymandering started to, to make their way uh, up the, the hierarchy of the, the federal judiciary. But um, I think there was a perception that the best way to solve this problem was to convince a majority of Supreme Court justices that partisan gerrymandering violated the constitution. And firstly, that strategy was not successful. There has never been a majority on the Supreme Court to declare gerrymandering unconstitutional under a clear uh, and, uh, and precise standard. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think the lesson that we can learn is that in all areas of societal change, it's always better when we get change at the impetus of the people hmm. rather than change imposed by, by judges. And I do think that there's room for, particularly at the state level, uh, lawsuits to be a good strategy for fighting gerrymandering, uh, particularly in those states that don't yet have commissions. But ultimately, if we're going to solve this problem, it's going to require the people to take enough of an interest in it to put initiatives on the ballot to create independent commissions to make this something that that politicians have to pay attention to uh, as i think i say in the conclusion the only way to fix this is to make the downside for politicians of using gerrymandering more significant than the benefit they currently get from from the manipulations and if that's the case whether it's through um, legislation getting through Congress to, uh, to end gerrymandering in U.S. House elections, or whether it's convincing state legislatures that 
uh, it's to their benefit to produce an electoral system that is representative uh, of the people uh, that relying on the courts has been both a failure and I think is also a suboptimal strategy for uh, for right. producing societal change. Right. Yeah. Not least because, uh, as you were saying, in the case of Florida, the, the necessity of producing all these other maps to show what an outlier the current map may be. Gerrymandering is one of these things that is a bit difficult to define, as you point out in the book. Uh, so much of it relies on, as you say, intent. Um, and you famously quote uh, uh, Potter Stewart. You know, I know it when I yeah. see it. Of course, he was talking about something else, not gerrymandering. But um, yeah, that's really interesting. And you also... And if you end your book, you, you think this is a big deal. You end your book with the words of Ben Franklin talking about, you know, the famously when he was leaving the, the convention in Philadelphia, Constitutional Convention, it was asked, do we have a republic or monarchy? And he said, uh, republic, if you can keep it. I mean, you think this is one of the, 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 the gerrymandering has the potential to, or maybe is already really demeaning um, the American, American democracy. Right. I do. And I think this has been... Um, a situation where the effects of technology and data and software kind of snuck up on us to an extent. Mm -hmm. I think gerrymandering has always been there in the background, but it's never been something that is sophisticated enough to really fundamentally threaten uh, the, the existence of representative democracy. Even in, in an individual state, you would see politicians using gerrymandering based on the best information that they had available to them at the time. And it would have effects maybe for, for a few elections, but it's, it's hard to predict how people are going to vote two, four, six years down the road. Um, but what we have now is gerrymandering that is sophisticated enough to build enough leeway into the map for it to remain robust in, uh, in the face of a variety of plausible future scenarios. Mm -hmm. So what can be done now is not just to look at how people have voted in the past and then divide up the districts so mm -hmm. that those votes translate into a certain political outcome. What the map makers can now do is simulate in a computer exactly how a given map is likely to perform under a variety of hypothet hypothetical future scenarios. So they can say, well, this map looks good for the next election, but what if, what if two or three cycles down the road, um, we lose the popular vote by X amount? Are we still going to keep our majority in that scenario? And that's what really concerns me the most, is that we have started to see, really only within the last two decades, states producing gerrymanders that have effects and fundamentally transform their elections for an entire decade. Right. And there's a reason why I focus on the state of Wisconsin quite a bit in the book, because Wisconsin is one of those states where the party that controlled the levers of power after the 2010 census has basically gerrymandered itself into a permanent majority in pretty much every election held in Wisconsin since, regardless of how the people have voted, the Republican Party has won close to two thirds of the seats in both houses of the, the state legislature. 
including in elections where Democrats have actually won the popular vote overall. So imagine that scenario where one party wins more votes than the other, and let the, yet the other party wins close to two-thirds of the seats, and that repeats election after election. And then by the time you get to the next redistricting cycle, that political party is still in control. And that's what kind of concerns me the most right now is that gerrymandering has become so sophisticated that its effects can kind of roll over from decade yeah. to decade. Yeah. We've seen that happening here in Florida, I think, in Wisconsin yeah. and, and in certain other states as well. And that's the yeah. direction I'm concerned that, that we're heading in. Yeah. Uh, Nick, you've written a, a fascinating book. As you, as you mentioned, it's, it's full of stories um, it, about uh, historical characters and their interactions with gerrymandering. Lincoln, that's a, such an interesting sort of uh, both affected by gerrymandering and then kind of came to endorse it a little bit later on. I would encourage our audience to read this book. It's a technical subject, Nick, but you managed to make it riveting. That's a real achievement. Um, Thank you. I'd like to end on uh, a personal note, and I wouldn't bring this up, but it's in the book. You have it in the acknowledgments, and it was it was uh, interesting to me. So you grew up in the UK, and the, you had a tell me about this. You had a class on American government in high school, and that was the motivation for you to move to America and become a political scientist. Or yeah, it was, and I I had always been growing up uh, fascinated by. The United States, and I was fortunate enough uh, because um, my dad actually was an attorney, and he was the North America representative for his firm. So he traveled to the U.S. a lot to meet with clients. He brought me and my brother uh, and my mom to the United States on, on vacation, and so I was already kind of fascinated. But my love of American politics, yeah, really came from from this one class in uh, in high school. Um, and I, I got to take this class on uh, on American politics and American government. And that was kind of the point where I decided that this is this is what I want to do. I want to go to the United States. I want to study this. I want to get a Ph.D. And uh, 15 years later, I, I'm still doing it. So it worked wow. out, worked out pretty well. Yeah. The influence of one teacher. And then and now we have uh, your great book. Um, wow. That's that's a great story. Um, Nick, it's a wonderful book. Thank you so much for spending some time with us uh, to talk about it and to show us how gerrymandering um, is, is still is, is a very uh, a, a potent issue, affects our elections, affects our democracy. Um, we really appreciate that, that, you, that you came and visited with us. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. It's been a pleasure.